Part Two, Chapter Ten of The Job. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Job by Sinclair Lewis. Part Two, The Office, Chapter Ten. The three fourths of Una employed in the office of Mister Troy Wilkins was going through one of those periods of unchanging routine when all past drama seems unreal, when nothing novel happens nor apparently ever will happen, such a time of dull peacefulness as makes up the major part of our lives. Her only definite impressions were the details of daily work, the physical aspects of the office, and the presence of the boss. Day after day, the same details of the job. Letters arriving, assorted, opened, answered by dictation, the answers sealed and stamped, and almost every day the same panting crisis of getting off some cosmically important letter. The reception of callers, welcome to clients, considerate but firm assurances to persons looking for positions that there was no opening just at present, the suave answering of irritating telephone calls, the filing of letters and plans, the clipping of real estate transfer items from newspapers, the supervision of Bessie Craker and the office boy. Equally fixed were the details of the grubby office itself. Like many men who have pride in the smartest suburban homes available, Mr. Wilkins was content with an office shabby and inconvenient. He regarded beautiful offices as in some way effeminate. His wasn't effeminate. It was undecorative as a filled ashtray, despite Una's daily following up of the careless scrubwomen with dustcloth and whisk. She knew every inch of it, as a gardener knows his plot. She could never keep from noticing and running her finger along the pebbled glass of the oak and glass partition about Mr. Wilkins's private office, each of the hundreds of times a day she passed it, and when she lay awake at midnight, her fingertips would recall precisely the feeling of that rough surface, even to the sharp edges of a tiny flaw in the glass over the bookcase. Or she would recall the floor rag, symbol of the hard realness of the office grind. It always hung over the twisted, bulbous lead pipes below the stationary basin in the women's washroom provided by the Septimus building for the women on three floors. It was a rag, ancient and slate-gray, grotesquely stiff and grotesquely hairy at its frayed edges, a corpse of a scrub-rag in rigor mortis. Una was annoyed with herself for ever observing so unlovely an object, but in the moment of relaxation, when she went to wash her hands, she was unduly sensitive to that eternal rag, and to the griminess of the washroom, the cracked and yellow-stained washbowl, the cold water that stung in winter, the roller towel which she spun round and round in the effort to find a dry, clean, square space 
till in a spasm of revulsion she would bolt out of the washroom with her face and hands half dried woman's place is in the home una was doubtless purely perverse in competing with men for the commercial triumphs of running that gray wet towel round and round on its clattering roller and of wondering whether for the entire remainder of her life she would see that dead scrub rag it was no less annoying a fact that bessie and she had only one wastebasket which was invariably at bessie's desk when una reached for it or that the door of the supply cupboard always shivered and stuck or that on thursday which is the three p m of the week it seemed impossible to endure the tedium till saturday noon and that invariably her money was gone by friday so that friday lunch was always a mere insult to her hunger and she could never get her gloves from the cleaner till after saturday payday una knew the office to a point where it offered few beautiful surprises and she knew the tactics of mr troy wilkins all managers bosses chiefs have tactics for keeping discipline tricks which they conceive as profoundly hidden from their underlings and which are intimately known and discussed by those underlings there are the bosses who bluff those who lie those who give good fellowship or grave courtesy in lieu of wages none of these was mr wilkins he was dully honest and clumsily paternal but he was a roarer a grumbler he bawled and ordained in order to encourage industry and keep his lambs from asking for raises thus also he tried to conceal his own mistakes when a missing letter for which everybody had been anxiously searching was found on his own desk instead of in the files he would blare well why didn't you tell me you put it on my desk hey he was a delayer also and in poker patois a passer of the buck he would feebly hold up a decision for weeks then make a whole campaign of getting his office to rush through the task in order to catch up have a form of masculine commuter hysterics because una and bessie didn't do the typing in a miraculously short time he never cursed he was an ecclesiastical believer that one of the chief aims of man is to keep from saying those mystic words hell and damn but he could make darn it and why in tunk it sound as profane as a gambling den there was included in una's duties the pretense of believing that mr wilkins was the greatest single-handed villa architect in greater new york sometimes it nauseated her but often he was rather pathetic in his shaky desire to go on having faith in his superseded ability and she would willingly assure him that his rivals the boisterous young firm of sewell smith and thistleben were frauds all these faults and devices of mr troy wilkins una knew 
Doubtless he would have been astonished to hear that fact, on evenings in his plate-racked, much-raftered, highly-built-in suburban dining-room, when he discoursed to the admiring Mrs. Wilkins and the mouse-like little Wilkinses on the art of office discipline, or mornings in the second smoker of the 816 train, when he told the other lords of the world that these stenographers are all alike. You simply can't get them to learn system. It is not recorded whether Mr. Wilkins also knew Una's faults, her habit of falling a-dreaming at 3.30 and trying to make it up by working furiously at 4.30, her habit of awing the good-hearted Bessie Craker by posing as a nun who had never been kissed nor ever wanted to be, her graft of sending the office-boy out for ten-cent boxes of coconut candy, and a certain resentful touchiness and ladylikeness which made it hard to give her necessary orders. Mr. Wilkins has never given testimony, but he is not the villain of the tale, and some authorities have a suspicion that he did not find Una altogether perfect. It must not be supposed that Una, or her million sisters in business, were constantly and actively bored by office routine. Save once or twice a week, when he roared, and once or twice a month, when she felt that thirteen dollars a week was too little, she rather liked Mr. Wilkins, his honesty, his desire to make comfortable homes for people, his cheerful good morning his way of interrupting dictation to tell her antiquated but jolly stories, his stolid, dependable-looking face. She had real satisfaction in the game of work, in winning points and tricks in doing her work briskly and well, in helping Mr. Wilkins to capture clients. She was eager when she popped in to announce to him that a wary, long-pursued prospect had actually called. She was rather more interested in her day's work than are the average of meaningless humanity who sell gingham and teach algebra and cure boils and repair lawnmowers, because she was daily more able to approximate perfection, to look forward to something better to some splendid position at twenty or even twenty-five dollars a week. She was certainly in no worse plight than perhaps ninety-five million of her free and notoriously red-blooded fellow-citizens. But she was in no better plight. There was no drama, no glory in affection, nor, so long as she should be tied to Troy Wilkins's dwindling business, no immediate increase in power and the sameness, the unceasing discussions with Bessie regarding Mr. Wilkins, Mr. Wilkins's hat, Mr. Wilkins's latest command, Mr. Wilkins's lost fountain pen, Mr. Wilkins's rudeness to the salesman for the Skyline Roofing Company, Mr. Wilkins's idiotic friendship for Muldoon, the contractor, Mr. Wilkins's pronounced unfairness to the office boy in regard to a certain lateness in arrival. At best, Una got through, day after day. At worst, she was as profoundly bored as an explorer in the Arctic night. 
Una, the initiate New Yorker, continued her study of city ways and city currents during her lunch hours. She went down to Broad Street to see the curb market, marveled at the men with telephones in little coops behind opened windows, stared at the great newspaper offices on Park Row, the old city hall, the mingling on lower Broadway of sky-challenging buildings with the history of pre-revolutionary days. She got a momentary prejudice in favor of socialism from listening to an attack upon it by a noontime orator, a spotted, badly-dressed man whose favorite slur regarding socialists was that they were spotted and badly dressed. She heard a negro shouting dithyrambics about some religion she could never make out. Sometimes she lunched at a newspaper-covered desk with Bessie and the office boy on cold ham and beans and small bright-colored cakes which the boy brought in from a bakery. Sometimes she had boiled eggs and cocoa at a child's restaurant with stenographers who ate baked apples, rich Napoleons, and, always, coffee. Sometimes at a cafeteria, carrying a tray, she helped herself to crackers and milk and sandwiches. Sometimes at the Arden Tea Room, for women only, she encountered charity workers and virulently curious literary ladies, whom she endured for the marked excellence of the Arden chicken croquettes. Sometimes Bessie tempted her to a Chinese restaurant, where Bessie, who came from the east side and knew a trick or two, did not order chop suey like a tourist, but noodles and eggs foo young. In any case, the lunch hour and the catalogue of what she was so vulgar as to eat were of importance in Una's history, because that hour broke the routine, gave her for an hour a deceptive freedom of will, of choice between Boston beans and New York beans. And her triumphant common sense was demonstrated, for she chose light, digestible food, and kept her head clear for the afternoon, while her overlord, Mr. Troy Wilkins, like vast numbers of his fellow businessmen, crammed himself with beefsteak and kidney pudding, drugged himself with cigar smoke and pots of strong coffee and shop talk, spoke earnestly of the wickedness of drunkenness, and then, drunk with food and tobacco and coffee and talk, came back dizzy, blur-eyed, slow-nerved, and for two hours tried to get down to work. After hours of trudging through routine, Una went home. She took the elevated now instead of the subway. That was important in her life. It meant an entire change of scenery. On the elevated, beside her all evening, hovering over her bed at night, was worry. Oh, I ought to have got all that Norris correspondence copied today. I must get at it first thing in the morning. I wonder if Mr. Wilkins was sore because I stayed out so long for lunch. What would I do if I were fired? So would she worry as she left the office. In the evening she wouldn't so much criticize herself as suddenly and without reason 
remember office settings and incidents, startle at a picture of the T-square at which she had stared while Mr. Wilkins was telephoning. She wasn't weary because she worried. She worried because she was weary from the airless, unnatural, straining life. She worried about everything available, from her soul to her fingernails, but the office offered the largest number of good opportunities. After all, say the syndicated philosophers, the office takes only eight or nine hours a day. The other fifteen or sixteen you are free to do as you wish, loaf, study, become an athlete. This illuminative suggestion is usually reinforced by allusions to Lincoln and Edison. Only, you aren't a Lincoln or an Edison, for the most part, and you don't do any of those improving things. You have the office with you, in you, every hour of the twenty-four, unless you sleep dreamlessly and forget, which you don't. Probably, like Una, you do not take any exercise to drive work thoughts away. She often planned to take exercise regularly, read of it in women's magazines, but she could never get herself to keep up the earnest clowning of bedroom calisthenics. Gymnasiums were either reekingly crowded or too expensive, and even to think of undressing and dressing for a gymnasium demanded more initiative than was left in her fagged organism. There was walking, but city streets become tiresomely familiar. Of sports she was consistently ignorant. So all the week she was in the smell and sound of the battle, until Saturday evening with its blessed rest, the clean, relaxed time which every woman on the job knows. Saturday evening. No work tomorrow. A prospect of thirty-six hours of freedom. A leisurely dinner. A languorous slowness in undressing. A hot bath. A clean nightgown. And fresh, smooth bed linen. Una went to bed early to enjoy the contemplation of these luxuries. She even put on a lace bed cap adorned with pink silk roses. The pleasure of relaxing in bed, of looking lazily at the pictures in a new magazine, of drifting into slumber, not of stepping into a necessary sleep that was only the anteroom of another day's labor. Such was her greatest joy in this period of uneventfulness. Una was, she hoped, trying to think about things. Naturally, one who used that boarding-house phrase could not think transformingly. She wasn't illuminative about Romaine Rolland, or Rodin, or village welfare. She was still trying to decide whether the suffrage movement was ladylike, and whether Dickens or Thackeray was the better novelist, but she really was trying to decide. She compiled little lists of books to read, movements to investigate. She made a somewhat incoherent written statement of what she was trying to do, and this she kept in her top bureau drawer, among the ribbons, collars, imitation pearl necklaces, handkerchiefs, letters from Walter, and photographs of Panama and her mother. 
She took it out sometimes, and relieved the day's accumulated suffering by adding such notes as, Be nice and human with employees if ever have any of own. Office wretched whole anyway because of economic system. W used to say, Why make worse by being cranky? Or, Study music. It brings country and W and poetry and everything. Take piano lessons when get time. So Una tramped, weary always at dusk, but always recreated at dawn, through one of those periods of timeless, unmarked months, when all drama seems past and unreal, and apparently nothing will ever happen again. Then, in one week, everything became startling, she found melodrama and a place of friendship. End of chapter 10